Welcome Okara. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I am a lecturer in sociology at the University of Kent. I'm also the co-founder of the International Association for Vegan Sociologists and past chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. So welcome to the first episode of this mini-series, Animals in Irish Society. So I specialize in the history of the Western animal rights movement and in animals and society more broadly. But this mini-series is in support of my third book, Animals in Irish Society, which publishes with the State University of New York in 2021. In this first episode, I thought we might start at the very beginning of Ireland, reaching back eight or 9,000 years. Um, so oftentimes people who are not from Ireland think about Irish history as being 100% uh, Celtic, but actually the Celts did not come uh, until much more recently in Irish history. So when the people of Ireland reached Ireland, what is now an island, they were settling the region at a time when most people of that part of the world were moving toward a, an, an agricultural pastoral type of uh, subsistence economy. So right from the very beginning, Ireland was very much so tied up in its relationship with other animals. So part of that agricultural lifestyle was, of course, domestication. And so almost from the very beginning, um, Ireland was a, a cattle-based economy. And so in this lecture, I wanted to talk about this concept of animism. And animism is basically the, the idea that humans and other animals, that boundary between the two is not so rigid as we understand it to be today. We can look a little bit at Celtic history, which we will, but you know the Celts only came to Ireland much more recently. And Irish people have been in Ireland for many thousands of years prior to the Celts. So this is something that is really as old as Ireland itself. And something that I think is also quite interesting about the history of Ireland and really in the context of animals and society is that the very bodies of Irish people, um, the very landscape of Ireland is shaped by this early relationship with non-human animals. So for, um, for many white, white Northern European folks, they have adapted to that type of climate after moving there thousands of years ago. They've adapted to that type of climate where it was much darker, the growing season was much shorter. Um, so their adaptation was to basically be able to digest lactose beyond the age of infancy, beyond the age when they should have been weaned. So for the global majority, uh, the global majority cannot digest lactose beyond being a baby. <laughs> like that's just nature's way. Um, but Ireland, uh, people who are indigenous to Ireland have a much higher rate of, the, of lactose tolerance. And so this is just fascinating, you know, that this is the actual physical genetic makeup of the human being that has been shaped by uh, their relationship, its relationship with other animals. And of course, the Irish idyll that we uh, romanticize today with the rolling green hills and the old crumbling stone ring forts, all of that uh, harkens back to an early agricultural Ireland where forests were moved to make way for cattle and sheep, where rocks were moved to make ring forts to keep them safe. 
So the very landscape, the very being of Ireland and the people who live there have been deeply shaped from the very beginning with this relationship with other animals. So in these early years, this concept of animism is really poignant. Animism, again, refers to the fact uh, that humans and other animals, the boundary was not so rigid as it is today. So if you look back at the early um, myths, the old tales, the Ulster tales, the heroic cycles, there's so many myths and narratives and stories of origin that speak to this very permeable barrier. Cuchulain is probably the most famous one. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with the Irish um, mythological kind of cycles, it's kind of similar to the old Greek myths where you know, you have a people who've been in that place for so many thousands of years, and this oral tradition has been passed on and passed on. And um, you know, these ideas of why the landscape looks like it does, why um, social relations are arranged the way they are, these have roots in these old, old stories. So Cuchulain is probably one of the most famous ones. He's an Irish hero, um, kind of back to the old days of kingship and warring tribes. And his name gives it away, Ku, meaning dog or hound. So the story goes that he was going to visit um, one of the kingships, and he uh, got into a tussle, I suppose, with the guard dog, and he kills this guard dog. And then to do penance, he becomes that guard dog. So his name literally, Ku, means hound, and so he becomes that, the hound of Kulan. There's also many stories of uh, other mythical heroes and beings that shapeshift. There's the Morrigan, the ancient Irish queen, who could change into lots of different animals, but most famously, the battle raven. Ravens have a very important role in early Irish mythology because as a, uh, ultimately a warring society, uh, ravens were First off, they could fly, so there's this belief that the crows, the ravens, could go over and see what was happening across enemy lines. But ravens were also a staple of the battlefield after people who'd been wounded and killed and fallen. The birds were carrion eaters, so they would come down and eat the corpses. So the Morgan was thought to be able to shapeshift and go and see what the enemy was up to. There's also the very famous warrior myth hero, Finn, Finn McCool, and he was a, uh, a warrior who was said to gain his various strengths from different types of species, most famously perhaps the fish of knowledge. So he would eat the fish of knowledge and therefore gain uh, the wisdom of the salmon. He had feats of battle feats that were like, uh, like cats, described to be like, uh, like the, being able to pounce like a cat. And he and his comrades, when they would enter the warp spasm, where they would take on all the powers and gruesome identities of all the most frightening animals all at once. And all of these different heroes were thought to be some kind of shape shapeshifters where they could become animals, not necessarily the other way around. So when we talk about animism, I think the temptation there is to, to imagine it being some, you know, um, utopian type of society where non-human animals are treated as equals, in a way, they were. They did have a much higher status because this was a society where human civilization was really immersed in the environment. 
And so there was no definitive line between civilized and natural. And so these non-human animals really were neighbors. They were community members and they did have much higher status. However, they were still being hunted. They were still being um, domesticated. So the status is, is certainly not equal, it's, but it is much higher. And so one of the reasons that, you, one of the pieces of evidence to that, that status differential is that in a lot of these myths, it's humans who can turn into animals. They have that power to turn into different animals, but rarely do you see animals turning into humans. Karl Marx, a very famous social uh, and political theorist, has argued that it is, the, it is the nature of a society's economy that will structure the ideologies and belief systems associated therein. And that's certainly the case with Ireland. And we'll talk more about that in other episodes. But with a society that is based on cattle, it is an economy based on livestock and a, an economy based on cattle where the very nature of that type of economy is it's very resource intensive and you're dealing with a country that is you know, limited geographically. And so when you have animals that require massive amounts of water and food in order to produce uh, breast milk, um, and it was mostly it was mostly a vegetarian um, type of lifestyle. The, the cows were much more useful alive than they were dead, much like in India. So when you have a situation like that where you have animals using lots and lots of resources, um, it really wasn't, it didn't really behoove communities to be very stationary. So it was a much more a uh, mobile type of lifestyle and cattle raiding was a major part of the economy and, and of the politics. Kings built their fame and their legitimacy around successful cattle raiding. So a lot of the early society uh, culture was built around that, that war-like relationship, war-like social structure, um, language of cows, words about cows were imbued in the place names the very language they spoke, buchal, means, which is the Gaelic word for boy, means cow herder. <laughs> so the, the language is all up in there, and the language is definitely uh, reflecting uh, the, the central role that cows and other animals played to early Irish social relations. I mentioned a moment ago that the early Irish diet was actually quite vegetarian, and this, this is this flies in the face of the big misnomer about Irish diet being historically very meat heavy and always being a cow society. Well, just because you have a cow society does not mean that the cows are more useful dead than alive. So in fact, the archeological record shows that the average Irish person was eating quite vegetarian. So lots of plants, lots of vegetables, lots of grains, especially oats, lots of nuts, especially hazelnuts, uh, fungus, seaweed, but very little meat. Meat was extremely resource intensive. So it was generally the older animals that would be used um, to be slaughtered for their meat and usually only for very special occasions. So right away, I think it's important to, when we're challenging this, you know, this construction of modern contemporary Irish society and a lot of times the, you know, the nationalist tendency there is to pull on and reimagine these old, um, old ways of being to normalize current ways of being. But in fact, the early Irish diet was very uh, skint when it comes to actual um, animal flesh. But there is a lot of evidence of non-human animals being slaughtered ritualistically um, in sacred sites and, and fairy rings and so forth. Um, Newgrange has uh, a lot of evidence of, of animal slaughter there as well. 
nonetheless, I think it's safe to say that, you know, with, with Irish society, a, a much more animistic, much greater status afforded to non-human animals, uh, very much a lot less of those animals actually being consumed, uh, a, a rich history of mythology um, around hunting, around battles, uh, around domesticated animals, which demonstrated how important animals were to, to everyday culture. So yeah, and, uh, and then of course coming with the Celts, the Celts had their own kind of animistic um, way of being. A lot of uh, Celtic holidays, for instance, celebrate um, uh, using non-human animal rituals, non-human animal foods, um, and a lot of them are, are around non-human animal kind of life cycles. So for instance, Imbolc, which is um, the day of the feast day of St. Bridget, which is around February 1st or 2nd, that was traditionally the time that the sheeps would go up into pasture and, and give birth. Um, Lunasa, Lunasa is the, you know, the August harvest festival. Um, that was also, that today is actually celebrated by the Puck Fair, uh, where a goat is hoisted up and, uh, and this old, you know, old Celtic pagan belief about the fertility around goats. Uh, there's also Samhain, Samhain, the Feast of the Dead. There were, um, Typically, uh, animal, slaughter, animal slaughter would take place at that time. But it would not be until the, the coming of the Christian church, the monasteries, um, Catholicism, that we see this animism ultimately eroded. Uh, and we can talk about that in another episode, the role of the church as an institution in uh, human supremacy, in eroding that old um, communal way of living with other animals and the natural world. The last bit I wanted to mention, um, you know, before Ireland really settled down into its cattle um, cattle economy, it also was uh, really engaged in hunting, not as much as other parts of Europe. Hunting really was a ceremonial type of affair, not so much a matter of um, gaining food. But in many cultures, hunting holds that um, sort of symbolic relevance in and ritualistic relevance and so there's a lot of mythology around hunting. Hunting actually be used in solidifying kingships and alliances. Um, there'd be special ways that the animals would be dismembered and shared among the hunting party. Hunts would also be used in preparation for battle as a form of training, uh, a way of uh, becoming familiar with the terrain. But non-human animals who were killed for hunts uh, tended to have much higher status um, of course, that has a lot to do with the fact that they're free living and the natural, like the, the animals are living in the natural world, so to speak, um, were a lot less easy to control. And so they were given a little bit more respect. Um, it, yeah, with, with the Celts, the Celts also engaged with that hunting, but hunting really was not a majorly practiced thing until, I, I would say, until the Normans came many hundreds of years later. And it wasn't just uh, cows in, on the domestic side, domesticated side, although it was a cow-based society, uh, pigs were also uh, an important part of that. Um, there are a lot of place names with the word mok in it uh, in reference to pigs. Um, pigs became a much bigger part of the Irish diet later, um, in, especially during under, under British colonialism. Um, but other animals were also used. There was a, 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 an earlier form of sheep that was uh, used, which is now extinct. 
dogs were also a big part of um, Irish culture, early Irish culture. The Irish wolfhound that we know today was a much different looking species, um, closer in size to a German shepherd, um, but was used, of course, uh, for hunting. Uh, wolves were actually in Ireland until the 1700s when British colonialism stamped those out. The great Irish elk of prehistory actually is thought to have gone extinct before humans arrived. So um, that's one, one, <laughs> one animal that was spared human hunters. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a rich variety of different myths about all kinds of different animals hunt, who were hunted, but also those who were domesticated. Um, even even um, otters. Uh, their, their skins were thought to be sacred and used for old harps, to make bags for old harps. And uh, Ku Kalan, by the way, who uh, uh, was actually thought to be part dog, the reason he was killed was because he was tricked into eating uh, an otter, and otters were thought to be water dogs, and so that weakened him in battle. And bringing it back to the old raven again, uh, the reason that they... that the people on the battlefield knew that Kukulon had finally been brought down, was that the ravens had descended upon him and had started to eat his flesh. And uh, today, today in city center Dublin, you can still see a, a, a statue uh, commemorating that mythology. I haven't mentioned horses too much, but horses, of course, were a major part of early Irish society as far as transportation. There's a lot of Celtic stories and um, older myths about chariots and chariot racing, although there's not much archaeological res um, um, evidence to support that. There's plenty of archaeological uh, evidence, however, to support that horseback riding took place. Uh, horses were sometimes used in sacrifices and in rituals, and some of this may have been hyped up by um, outsiders who had colonial interests and wanted to portray um, the Irish people as being particularly barbaric. But in, in sacrificial situations, it's, it's generally going to be cows, um, bulls, pigs. Sometimes dogs were also used. But in any case, just to wrap up, it's, it's pretty clear that ancient Ireland, as far back as when humans reached that space, uh, it was deeply animistic. The boundary between humans and other animals was not so rigid. In the old tales of you know, the Irish, Irish dream time, um, the great warriors and queens and kings could become animals. And animals, in many ways, could communicate with humans in a much more meaningful way than perhaps they're thought to today. Um, there, there was a, a deep awareness that non-human animals and humans had um, kind of a community and relied upon one another. And this categorization of humans and other animals that we abide by today, it certainly was not... Um, so relevant back in those times. If you want to learn more about animals in Irish society, be sure to check out my new book by the same name. You can also find out more from my website at coreyleewren.com. So I want to give a quick shout out. Thank you to my brother Jonathan Wren for this amazing soundtrack. Salon.